Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Arts Equator Theatre Podcast. We're very happy to be back um, so soon. And today we're here, as usual, with me, Naeem Kapadia. I'm joined by Matt Lyon. Hello. And Nabila Syed. Hi. Today we are going to be discussing two plays from the recently concluded Now Festival, the Festival of Women, um, which are King by Joe Tan and The Book of Mothers by Eleanor Tan. Both these plays were available online, um, one of which was um, through a video and the other one was through a sound recording. And yeah, dealing with various issues relating to gender and the female experience. And on that note, I think we should move it over to Nabila, who maybe can kick us off with um, King by Joe Tan. So tell us a little bit about this play, Nabila. Okay, so King by Joe Tan is um, a monodrama, I would say, where Joe plays all the characters in a play that's predominantly about the exploration of gender and that gender is really looked at in terms of the spectrum of gender. In the play, she her main character is called Gyeok Yen, a kind of like a mousy Chinese office lady, OL. Um, and she is in a relationship that's very vanilla with her, you know, her boyfriend called Matt, I believe. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Matts this time around. I apologise for my name. There's <laughs> going to be hundreds of us. Yeah, and the persona that we see that allows her to break through, I think, this stereotype is um, drag king persona called Sterling Da Silva, pun fully intended, I'm sure. Um, and I think this persona, she discovers it during an office party where uh, I think, does she come She wears in her drag? boyfriend's clothes to the party. Yeah, so the moment she comes in in drag in this party, like all her colleagues react to her in a very different way, in surprise and shocked with her sudden newfound confidence. Yes. And because of this, um, she essentially gets a pass or invitation to be part of the drag world, right? Because of her colleague, Ethan. Yes. who is really her boss, like one of her bosses, right? Superior, certainly. Maybe he was in a different department. Yeah, PR but, or uh, something. Yeah, above her in the hierarchy. Yeah, so he is actually, uh, every Sunday he performs in a cabaret as a drag queen. And so he invites her to come and then she becomes a drag king, basically, in this world. The play, I think, really looks at the idea of performativity of gender, because I think of the whole idea of drag. So I don't know whether you've heard this Lady Gaga line where we are all born naked and the rest of it is drag. Okay, either Lady Gaga or RuPaul. I thought it was RuPaul. Okay, yeah. yes, it's RuPaul. I think it's RuPaul. Yeah, but yeah, I think like good. this play kind of like embodies this Very idea, much. right? No, definitely, definitely. And I think that that whole idea of self-identity so much, and as you said, like the main character, Gyok Yen, is this very colourless woman who feels almost diminished in some way. And and this is beautifully captured by Jo in the way she plays the character. She almost seems unsure of herself. She keeps going to hmm, hmm, and swallowing <laughs> yeah. repeatedly as if she's unsure of everything she says. And that changes with a snap the moment she takes on this persona of Sterling where she's able to suddenly say things which she would never in a million years have said before. So I think it's just a way of her trying to find that sense of confidence and also through the performance which she does at the at the drag um, cabaret later on, she just realises that actually I do have a personality and I should just embrace it. And what I thought was interesting about this play is that obviously there is the literal sense of drag of taking on another gender, but it's also the idea of how 
everyone in some ways performing. Um, and this is evident throughout all the characters she embodies. So there's the husband who has this very traditional idea of, you know, mm. I take care of you, yeah. I'm the man and you boyfriend, take... Yeah. Boyfriend, sorry, yeah. the boyfriend, oh, yeah. Matt. Um, and then there's the boyfriend's best friend who's the toxic masculine, masculine. character who tells her she's not pretty enough and she should... Make Get, sure, lose weight. Yeah, lose and, weight uh, so that he sticks with her. And then there's the female boss who, you know, obviously wants to dress to impress just so that people take notice of her at work mm. to the gay Australian colleague called Ethan, who's a feminine gay man. So everyone mm. has this role which they play. And I thought that's quite interesting. This idea of drag, not in the literal sense, but in a figurative sense of us performing every single day of our lives. And indeed the opposite, how gender can perform you, which is what we see at the start with Gyok Yan. You mm. talked about her, hmm, 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 all these little things that Joe did with these, the way she compresses her mouth and the sound yes. she makes. She did it so skillfully that you mm. could tell that she was accepting the pressures upon her and going along with it, but that she really didn't want to. Mm. And that the way she felt confined within the expectations of her gender was what created her physicality and her voice and defined her presence in the world until she finds a way to break out of that. And equally, her husband seems to be trapped within gender constraints so that it is performing him rather than the other way round. So that does set you up for a a very nice journey where the characters kind of learn to navigate and grow with that. I thought it was yeah. well handled in that regard. Mm. I think also beyond kind of like showing you a spectrum of this idea of gender, there was this also idea of like the privileges that each gender gets and what happens when you transgress a certain line. So for example, as a drag king or when she is at the cabaret, she uses some of the slurs that Ethan uses with um, another friend who's also a drag queen. And then they're like, no, you can't say that just because we invited you into this world. Even though, oddly enough, she is, although she's in drag at the time, a cis woman saying the C word at that point yeah. and it is to men who take offence and feel like they own that word which was in context actually Did plausible All right. what was interesting to me is that the characters don't always give the best argument <laughs> and I like that because if you think of an Alfian play you have these incredibly hyper literate characters who always give exactly the right argument whereas here yeah, I don't always think of the right argument first. Yeah. I think there was probably a little bit too much of that. Some of the arguments in the play were a little bit circular, but I, I don't know, it mm. kind of worked for me. Yeah. I think one example of that that I could remember is when Ethan gets really upset. Maybe in an Alfian play, it would be argued to the end of that point mm. that, you know, being a drag queen is not the same as being a transsexual. But with this play, she kind of like left it there because I feel like what you're saying, Matt, it was politically incorrect and just allowed to kind of breathe as a very realistic exchange that because she trusts that her audience will get it yeah which i like yeah and just to go back to your point on privilege i think it was quite interesting as well because obviously um trapped in her everyday working environment she clearly feels that 
men as well as very powerful femme fatale types are the ones who advance. But mm. when the tables are turned and she's within this drag society, she's the one with the privilege. And I think there was a line where they say, this is just a weekend hobby for you. This is a way of life for us. Mm. You know, the men who come to this drag club have had some negative experiences or perhaps being bullied, discriminated against. And this is a place where they have an outlet to be themselves and to find their own authentic voice. But for her, it's just a form of creative mm. expression and she can go back to her happy, yeah. um, you know, domestic life. So she just realises that this time she is the one with the privilege for being able to snap her fingers and go back. Mm. Um, and so therefore it cuts both ways and yeah. that just makes her more aware of these issues as well. Mm. I like that actually because Joe could have very easily fallen into the trap of centering the cisgender Chinese perspective. Yes. But with that scene, I felt that she showed that there was an awareness that there could be some problematicness to the fact that she was kind of, you know, as also the main actor, writer, that could have been like the main thing and I think that could be problematic. But she showed that um, she could break away from that. I also feel like there's the idea of like the box that Gyok Yan was finding herself in and being sterling allowed her to break out of the box. Mm. But there are limitations even when you break out of the box. You know, you can't just like say anything and do anything. Like there's no freedom or, or lack of responsibility to what you say. And so some of the characters really put her put her feet to the fire in terms of some of the things that Sterling says, the problematic things. Quite. I mean, I guess at the start of the play, we see somebody who takes the bullets and then she turns into someone who shoots the bullets. Yes. And then by the time you get to the end of the play, it's like, mm, maybe we need to put the guns down. <laughs> and it's composed of all these binaries. Each character seems to see themselves in terms of oppositions to the other, which, you know, look out the window. I guess that's how the world works. And I think by having these scenes where she's able to play these very strongly defined, both in terms of the writing and, of course, in terms of the performance, characters off against each other with their own wants and needs and their own forces acting upon them, she is able to kind of break off these chunks of identity which we can then examine. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think that's why it's quite powerful to be able to see and she does I think eight different characters and obviously not all of them are as well fleshed out as the other but um, she manages to differentiate them quite well and it's very simple she uses a single prop so she's just in this very simple basic outfit for the whole performance which is shot primarily on three cameras either one straight ahead and one on each side but every time she plays another character apart from the main character she puts on one little prop be it, you know a pair of sun glasses or a feather boa or um, you know a cigarette or something like that and it's just a very simple idea of how we layer these these little aspects of perhaps personality mm. on on ourselves every day as we perform the the roles in our daily life um, and she did that quite well just the kind of you know oh, yeah. from the Australian accent of the gay colleague to the kind of sassy uh, mama lemon at the club to mm. the alpha male um, toxic best friend all these little characters are given their own shade and I think it's really a testament to her skill as an oh, actor to play that wide yeah, spectrum Yeah it was extremely skillful I mean talking about how she gave each one of them a prop a feather boa things like that I can see why she did that in a play about drag and she handled it very adroitly mm. part of me wishes she hadn't because she didn't need it mm. and it's not because she put the sunglasses on her head that she became a character it's because she changed her face and her physicality she leans in she leans back she changes the timbre of her voice 
some of the characters didn't even look like each other. Mm. She did a really, really good job. And as well as that, she's doing it from the waist up. It's um, shot with three cameras and the cameras just switch. But they're static shots and we only ever see her from, I don't know, belly button up, I guess. Mm. And so she isn't able to access her gait. You know, she doesn't have a leg. She doesn't have the sidestep movement that you often do when you're multi-rolling. She just did all of it with her upper body and her face. It was really, really good work. Yeah, and and we were also talking about this is Joe's second full-length play. So she did Forked, which was a play that went through quite a bit of a incubation period. It was part of the playwriting program which she had done, and then it was staged at the Fringe Festival before being a solo show done by the finger players and that play itself kind of went through many many iterations where I think in the earlier stages it was a wide cast of characters and then it became more of a monodrama where she took on all the characters and I feel this is in some ways a continuation of that so she plays all the different characters and not only was it performed well, it was quite powerful in terms of its themes and its writing as well. Mm. I mean, obviously, there were bits that could have been explored better, but considering the limitations they had in terms of um, this being on a digital format and, you know, as you said, only with the mm. waist up, I think it was a, a very entertaining and and well-performed piece and well-directed as well by Jasmine Ng, the director here. Yeah, I just think it's like a, a really good exploration in both form and content of performativity. I wanted less, mm. though. I think at its heart, this should be the story of Gyok Yen and how she uses Sterling or perhaps is used by Sterling, this alternative identity and how that affects her presence in the world. Some of the other characters, well, there's the colleague that you mentioned with the cigarette, cigarette, Andrew. He just has no reason to exist whatsoever. And some of the others, I think, fall into that slightly mm. uncomfortable middle ground where we either need more from them or we need less. Like mm. they're either their own people or they're there yeah. to support her. Mm. And I think there's such richness in, you know, you said she is a, a cis woman and maybe... We want to hear more from the gay characters. Maybe there should be trans characters, but maybe they need their own show because there is enough, I think, to say about her mm. journey within this patriarchal world. So I really kind of like another draft which focuses it a little bit more cleanly on her so that we don't get into this. Shouldn't we hear more about that guy? No, he's not there for himself. He's there and, for and her. I, I think I can see why you say that, because especially for the Ethan character, I think he got quite well developed in the play mm -hmm. um, to becoming from a general acquaintance to almost a confidant. He's the one who brings her to this drag club. And then he shares these secrets about his own life, about how he's in you know, a relationship with another man who seems to be using him. And you know he's quite broken up about it. And um, due to an unfortunate incident, he leaves the country and we don't really get a resolution with his story and you know you might feel invested and slightly unsatisfied as to how yeah. that ends but I think you're right it is ultimately Gyok Yen's story and it does end on a positive note so she has clearly some character development not everyone else does but maybe this is not the play for everyone to have a perfect ending. If it were I think it probably couldn't be a monodrama. Yeah. Mm. Because she's got two characters in there that she can really invest in the humanity. And you can't do that with every bit actor. 
you know. And I thought her performance of the um, Australian gay guy, Ethan, was fine. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't nearly as strong or as detailed as a performance of the two leads. Of course, And it probably shouldn't be, but then maybe that means that it shouldn't be there in the writing either. Maybe at the end of it, she wants us to also question the cost of some of the development of Gyok Yen's character. Because Mm. if she tied everything up so perfectly, perfectly, even for Ethan, then, you know, then maybe that point gets a bit lost. But with the point she was trying to make with Ethan, not everyone gets to have this happy ending, you know, Mm. everyone's happy. Because some people, like, that's just their life, struggling. And if society doesn't treat everyone as equal, then inequalities will always exist. So maybe it could be a thing that she was trying to do, perhaps. Yep, yep, exactly. It's just... A sad reality, right? At the end of the day, you know, she's a straight woman and, you know, I think she clearly has that privilege, um, which unfortunately someone like Ethan maybe doesn't get to enjoy. Mm. Um, But then he gets to be male. In his work, he's a little bit more butch. He's not out, out at work. Yeah. So the upsides and the downsides and how society rewards or punishes gender, it's richly Mm. in there, I think. And I think there's definitely enough there. I mean, I thought this is something that really tackles quite thorny issues about gender. And I think she does it really well. So I would be very happy if, you know, there was a further incarnation of this work. Just because I've heard and seen how some of her other plays have fared so well in that journey which they've had. Yeah, I I liked it a lot. Yeah, cool. Well then, moving on. So that was King by Joe Tan. And the other play we are speaking about today is The Book of Mothers. This was written by Eleanor Tan and directed by Edith Podesta. This was effectively a radio play. It was obviously intended to be a a full-fledged production, but due to Mm. the COVID pandemic and the festival being digital, it was made into an audio recording. And the Book of Mothers is basically the story of Louise, who is this middle-class young wife who finds herself pregnant and is very ambivalent about the situation. Um, Mm -hmm. She comes from a single-parent family where she was left alone, abandoned by her mother, who was a career-obsessed woman. Her father died when she was young. And because she herself didn't feel necessarily very loved when she was growing up and resents the mother for that, she's not sure if she herself can be a good mother. So despite the fact that her husband is very excited about the child, she just can't quite conjure up the same emotions and the play is kind of an exploration of that mm. tussle I guess between you know what motherhood means that invasion into one's life and you know how a woman is meant to kind of juggle this idea of having some sense of autonomy over her life and being completely held to ransom by mm. biological forces mm. so what did you think Nabila? I guess the other thing about it is it's also interspersed by biblical, I think, references mm. to the to be, right yeah. the role of a mother or the expectations yeah. of a mother. So for me, I came away from it thinking that it kind of has an allegorical tone to actually the entire play because there's something kind of dreamlike and fantastical about it, so much so that the realistic parts of it were also not quite realistic. So we were talking about how like me and Naeem might have taken some of the scenes to have been as is, like realistic sequences, when they might not have been, right, Matt? You were saying I think that's a very nice way of saying that it was very, very confusing. <laughs> and that a lot of the time the play pulls the rug out from under you. And I couldn't 
see the purpose for it. So you start with a character who apparently doesn't seem to want a baby. Okay, maybe、mm. she wants the husband then. But then, no, she doesn't want the husband. So then she wants the baby, and she speaks to her mother about it. And then at the end of the scene, you find out that no, she can't have been speaking to her mother because her mother has advanced dementia. But that's、mm. not clearly put across to the point where neither of you got that right. Yeah. So you thought she was literally speaking to the mother, but apparently not. And then there's a scene where she says she's going to have an abortion, and we believe she's had an abortion, and then she hasn't had an abortion for very dubious reasons. And then there's a scene where the unborn granddaughter speaks to the dementiaed grandmother, neither of whom obviously can speak, and the main character who is supposedly imagining both of them isn't there,、mm. and they seem to be giving information that she couldn't have had. And in one scene, the unborn granddaughter complains about being aborted, and in another scene, she then complains about being born. And then in the scene between the grandmother and the granddaughter, the granddaughter ends up saying goodbye to the grandmother, and we all thought she was dead.、Yeah. And then in the next scene, she's alive. I don't know why it kept saying this is red. No, it's green. No,、yeah. it's red. No, it's green. I didn't get why it did that. Thank you for. Being able to articulate all the plot points, which <laughs> it's been, it's been, a, it's been、uh, a couple of it's, it's been a couple of weeks. So,、mm. um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. So, just like the fact that the mother, who's played beautifully by Karen Tan, yeah,、um, nice. has advanced dementia, and it's revealed that the mother is barely lucid, but in the play itself, for the most part, she is involved in very articulate. Detailed conversations with、um, the main character Louise,、mm. and I thought that was just essays,、um, only to realize that most of these conversations were presumably imagined. And the fact that this was a radio play where we couldn't see anyone, the plot itself just really needed some major work in order to cohere for an audience.、Mm. I mean, I feel like I really relate to some of the things that Eleanor was trying to talk about. Like, there's all this information out there about what mothers are supposed to be, and blah blah blah. And if you feel like you can't quite、uh, relate to any of them, then you do feel alienated and you do feel alone. Even the idea of all these people not actually talking in real life, to me, it makes sense in terms of like the alienation of the main character. But those fantastical sequences between the grandchild and the grandmother, there were some rules that weren't clear. So, for example, there's One moment where the grandchild is like, "Oh, I don't know enough to say," but then she also knows too much about everything. So then you don't know whether she's kind of like an imagination of the main character, or she actually is a child that could have existed that may have all these memories and information about life. But because I felt that it was a bit inconsistent, so as an audience member, I was like, "So is this a real child, or is this an imagined you child?" You do get stuck a- on those technicalities, don't you? Yeah. Where if the situation were presented in a different theatrical format, and I don't mean radio play as opposed to stage play, I think it could have worked out. You talked about alienation and ambiguity, and、mm. of course that is wonderful territory to explore. But it's not territory that you can easily explore in this format. 
where you have a central character engaged in conversations with others, you know, the traditional way you do to get drama which propels a plot forward. Mm. That's reliant on a character who wants something, not a character who is in this ambiguous situation or who feels alienated. So I think you need to turn to something post-dramatic there. And if this were able to invest in a kind of a more fragmented, a more mystical, a more, you've used the word fantastical, yeah, but it didn't seem that way, did it? And that's, I think, what tripped yeah, a lot of us and up. and I think that's exactly it because it's set up in this very naturalistic format. It starts with a domestic conversation between husband and wife. The wife reveals that she's gotten pregnant, husband is very excited, wants to bring her out to celebrate and have mala hot pot, you know, things like that. It's <laughs> it's written in this very careful, formal, precise English of the sort that you would hear on television in the 70s and 80s and which just somehow doesn't quite relate to the theatre we see on stage these days. So that sort of made the play one step removed for me, like almost as this very formal, forced skit that some governmental body would put up. Oh, nice. You know, that sort of idea, like this is like the proper family, like, you know. Well, as an example, I mean, In the previous one we talked about King, Joe was herself playing so many different characters, whereas here we had different actors for the characters. Now, if you just like remember listening to it, which of those characters sounded most different? It's Joe's, right? It's King, even though Mm. she was only one person doing them. Exactly, exactly. And I think the other thing I have to say is obviously there were seven or eight characters in this show, The Book of Mothers, just like in Jotan's King. But some of the characters were just so painfully underwritten and such caricatures. I mean, we have the best friend characters who are practically indistinguishable from each other. You know, you have a potty mouth lawyer, you have some sarcastic pregnant best friend, you have some buffoonish comic relief kind of male best friend character who will kind of have two or three lines here and there. Um, And then you have the husband, the wife, the mother. You know, at the end of the day, like you wonder whether all these characters were just simply put in just to kind of fill out a certain number of pages Mm. Um, because there's there so many There is a scenes. scene of a confrontation in a hospital where the best friends are hanging around and I can't for the life of me tell why. Yeah, so this yeah. this is the scene where, um, and it's a spoiler, but, you know, it's a short play and it's over. Uh, <laughs> it's um, Although they are being put on video or audio on demand on Vimeo from the 10th of August, so we'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, so this is a spoiler alert, but at one point, Louise decides to sort of quote-unquote test the fidelity of her husband so Mm. she um, has experiencing some bleeding and is hospitalized and when the husband comes to sort of see her she tells him that oh she's lost the baby indeed she's had it aborted yeah and he violently overreacts and there's this bitter he doesn't overreact well well, I mean I think I think he violently reacts violently reacts violently reacts which I think is perfectly plausible in the circumstances and they kind of separate for a while etc but ultimately get back together and it's revealed that you know the baby is perfectly fine and she goes on to to have a healthy baby girl but I just thought that scene was very bizarre because well if you think of it as a myth like if it's Greek drama it's fantastic Mm. yeah but if it's presented in this very middle class very beige scenario it strikes you as weird and this is such a the character is written in such a way that you know she would never do anything so melodramatic she chides the husband for making cheesy jokes (laughs) um you know she seems generally 
ambivalent about well, most things. Well, that's the root of the issue, right? Yeah. What does she want? That, that's the thing. And that makes the characters unlikable. In this kind of play, it's got to be driven by somebody who wants something. Mm. You can want almost anything as a character, and if you want it hard enough, the audience will go with you and like you and want you to achieve that. But she doesn't want to. She, she mainly not wants things. She yeah. mainly doesn't want what she has. Yeah, and that makes me just wonder why Why did she even marry this guy who clearly is, you know, a perfectly decent man who just wants to embrace fatherhood. Um, why did they stick together for four years when she clearly didn't enjoy her childhood, uh, feels ambivalent about the prospect of motherhood, doesn't really yeah. seem to have any strong feelings about what she wants in life. You know, it just it's a character which unfortunately, especially with the constraints of an audio play, you just are desperate to put your finger on, but you can't quite understand what makes her tick yeah. and I think that's why it's such a frustrating play to sort of um, grapple yeah. with I could really relate to the husband and how frustrated he felt throughout the play because that's oh, kind of how vastly I better written than, than the <laughs> yeah. wife because that's how I felt as an audience like I felt very outside of what was happening and whatever he was feeling I was feeling usually so when he was angry about being you know tricked or whatever I was also like what? like why is my wife behaving so weirdly? I don't think all of it is the pregnancy you know what I mean? Like, Would you agree that that's not the playwright's intention though? I mean we can't know but didn't it feel like the playwright was actually on Louise's side and we were supposed to? What did you think about that? I couldn't really tell. I'm not sure, but it seems like a very personal play to Eleanor Tan. That's how it feels like, right? I think, Naim, you were yeah. saying that some of the biblical references yeah. came from Eleanor's own... Yeah, so I think, and this was from the post-show discussion, which I tuned into, and she mentioned how she went to, uh, I think, Methodist or Christian school, so she obviously had these biblical, you know, verses, and she's obviously a practicing Christian and used to teach at Sunday school, so obviously these biblical verses, which obviously cherish this idea of the ideal wife and mother, were things that had been ingrained mm. within her for many years, and structurally, I think it does form a nice counterpoint and slightly ethereal. And I think the other point which I really appreciated is that all these verses about the perfect mother are all verses by men. Mm. You know, they're written texts from men on how a woman should behave. Yeah. But then you have the character who wants to kind of experience motherhood and confront it on her own terms. Mm. And that was a nice contrast yeah. um, between kind of tradition and, you know, individuality, modernity, that sort of thing. So it's interesting that she brought maybe that kind of personal religious experience into the mm. play, but I still don't feel that made for a play that one could necessarily really get into. Mm. I was going to say that I think the actor who was also playing the child is Eleanor's own daughter. Erin Chan. Oh. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it kind of lends to that whole like personal aspect of this play. I was actually thinking about this because when I was thinking about the play, I did enjoy some of the manifestations of the frustrations and anger that women feel about yeah. the role that they have to play. Mm -hmm. But funnily enough, I feel like I got it more from the Bible verses than from the actual mm. plot. Yes, because, I would agree. Right? And I'm not sure how, whether that was intentional, but well, I'm yeah. I'm totally up for a play where, as with the Bible verses, it just shows you how many doors get slammed. Yeah. So then, you know, what can the prospective mother do but stand there spinning, not knowing where to go? But this mm. was not the format that enabled that to happen. You just got 
annoyed at her pinballing off the doors, if anything. Whereas something that more kind of psychologically or maybe more mythically explored the nature of their alienation and frustration, rather than trying to fit itself into a well-made play, which is just not the shape for it. Mm, yeah. But I mean, that being said, look, I thought it was generally quite well paced. So that at mm. least made for a reasonably pleasant listening experience. And also they worked with singer-songwriter Inch Chua, who did the sonic oh, elements, the soundscapes. And I think she mentioned at one point how she tried to give some oral texture to the performance by following the actors as they spoke. So there's that sense of you actually listening to them as if you were witnessing the conversation unfold right in front of your eyes. So mm. those elements I think were fine. They gave the naturalistic scenes, I guess, a little bit more authenticity. And also in terms of the acting, you know, you have Karen Tan, very, very experienced veteran actor as the, the mother. She's so good at... Because yeah. this was Robert Yeo dialogue and she gave it such mm-hmm. tonal variety. She made it sound like yeah. speech, but I, more interesting. Exactly. Very I good. think, honestly, just listening that that was a very, very fleshed out character just from the passages that I heard but I can't say the same for some of the other characters obviously we talked about the extremely throwaway best friend best friend type characters I thought Brendan Fernandez who plays the husband Matt did a fairly possible possible (laughs) job that's also Matt Uh, it's it's clearly the name for for, for husbands it's the husband name Um, boyfriend slash husband name but anyway yeah so I think he did a possible job job. I mean Wan Ching I think that was the thing it brings us to the central characters I just could not understand the character I mean like yeah she read her lines no I mean okay so I think Karen Tan's character was probably the most well written character because Karen Tan is obviously a really great actress but I think the writing helped also but with Wan Ching's character I think it was harder to transform all these lines into a really like believable character with a good performance that's what I felt with Karen Tan's character we did at least get details about her life we didn't really have details about the other characters. Exactly. And I think you made this very interesting point when we were speaking earlier, Matt, about how, you know, if we go back to Joe Tan's play King, pulling a stunt like telling your husband that, oh, actually, you know, I've lost the baby. That would be something that Joe Tan's Gyok Yen may have done after, you know, exploring her her gender with this drag king personality. Well, so much pressure is put on uh, Gyok Yen's character that she has to fight back against it. She does it by creating a drag persona, but if she'd done it by lying about having an abortion, we'd have bought it equally. But there's nothing... This woman, on the other hand, like, there seems to be so little that we can penetrate in terms of her character. Like, there's no irony or personality that we get. She seems mildly irritated Mm -hmm. and going through the motions of her life. So to have this kind of soap opera-esque moment where, oh, I have lost the child. And you can imagine like all the friends standing there and then the husband at the other end of the room looking in shocked disbelief. It's a yeah. scene right out of a sort of, you know, glee, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think that's where I was just like, uh, where is this going in terms of tonal? And I think like characters having out-of-character moments are okay. It's not that you can't do it. Mm. But the fact that like after that happened, she kept, 
changing her mind still, yeah. then it doesn't make sense to me as an audience member to give my full support behind some of the implausible moments. If things are just going to keep changing and like what Matt was saying, like rug being pulled under the audience's feet, then it gets very tiring and then you don't root for any of these characters, essentially, is what it is. And you don't even root for the play, which is really kind of weird. And I think it's a kind of shame because of the issues that are so real and such a rich theme that she could have drawn a lot more yes. out of. Um, but I do feel that like I would want to see this being developed. I'm coming away feeling like it has potential, it needs a bit more working. I don't know whether an audio play is the form yes, for it. I agree. I just don't think considering the character she's dealing with and some of mm. the sequences that she seems to be introducing, you really need to see these things yeah. in order to have that buy-in, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say that I actually went for a reading of this play um, a year ago and it was done kind of like, you know, like dra dramatised reading. Mm, yeah. And I actually, at that moment, I felt that it had a lot of potential. And now that I, I can recall some of the moments when, you know, they kind of pick up a, an actual big book and they read from it. And, and, yeah. and th those scenes now kind of make more sense than this. Like, you well, needed to see some Inch of these things. did like try that. to do little bits of that with the sound design and I wish he'd gone more. You know, there were reverb on some of those passages. Yes. One of the nicest moments for me was when the speech turned into a vocoder metallic sound oh. towards the end of a passage no, that was, that was being read out. there was this slightly ethereal quality. I mean, I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but I could definitely distinguish that Book mm. of Mother, you know, segment yes. from the that play proper. So I think that was whatever she had done vocally or orally to yeah, that Yeah, there was some worked. bit crushing, there was some um, pitch lowering. And just that sense that things might be breaking you know, that the sound design was helping to break the world. Mm. And I want to see a play on this theme. I think it's it's very interesting. But this is a play that's so invested in telling the traditional three-act play story that its attempts to destabilise itself and break itself apart, get locked within a framework that won't allow that. Mm. So I don't actually think there is potential in this play because I think right from the beginning it took the wrong formal path. Mm. And I think mm -hmm. something that went a little bit more post-dramatic, let the sound design break itself up, showed the kind of internal psychology of this woman who mm. feels that the world is pinballing her around. So it's not a one-on-one -on -one dialogue conversation, but it's bigger than that. It's fantastical yeah. again. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just thinking also of other domestic plays like, um, you know, Faith Ng's For Better or For Worse, which mm. was a fantastic play about this kind of disintegrating middle-class marriage between a couple who has been together for many, many years. And there were only two characters, the husband and the wife, but mm. they kind of embody all these other little characters in the periphery. And I'm just thinking this is probably a better format for something like that rather than having all these like eight different bitty characters. You can have effectively the main character and the mother. Mm. I think that's the relationship which I think is at the core of this. It's these two women. And, you know, you can almost embody all the rest by just reported speech or whatever else. Mm. So I think it's yeah. just a case of however you choose to edit it. It needs to be just presented in a way that makes for slightly more coherent text. Okay, well, so that brings us to the end of the NOW Festival, the Festival of Women. Um, and as Matt was saying, I think the Book of Mothers is going to be made available. 
both on of demand. them. I think. I think both of them. Both of them. So yeah. so if you do want to catch these two shows, um, they are going to be made available online. So do that. And till next time, um, this is the Arts Equator Theatre Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank and you. Bye-bye. bye-bye.